you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. We are in the book of John, the second chapter. We'll be in the first 12 verses of John chapter 2. And just to give you a heads up as well, seeing that it is Easter season, and this is going to be, I think for many of us, a very convicting sermon. I hope the Word of God is convicting always, and, and that's a good thing, but very evangelistically convicting, if I, if I may. And so let me start with this question on the front end. If Jesus were physically present right now, right, in a tangible form, right now, what do you think his primary focus of ministry would be if he were here right now? What would would his status on Facebook be? Like, what would be the things he's talking about, he's thinking about, the conversations he's having with people? What would they be geared around? What would be his strategy or method in engaging this community in this neighborhood? And so what would Jesus ultimately make visible in the here and the now? And with that, what is it that you are known for? What is it that you're about? When people look at your life, they listen to your words or read your social media posts, what is it that they're seeing? What are they reading? What are they understanding When you relate to the world around you, what are you putting into clear focus? What is your primary thing? When I think about this person, this is their thing. This is what they're about. And what is ultimately visible about you? What is the thing that you bring tangibly to surface, to bear in the community around you? What is it that you represent? Who are you and what is it you stand for? It is usually things that we glory in that we find to be a great wonder in our life. The thing that becomes the most visible thing about us. Whatever that thing is that we are glorying in. And that should cause some form of conviction and really challenge us all. What is the most visible thing about you? Right? What is the thing that you glory in? Maybe you don't know what that, that glory is for you, but maybe you can look at yourself and just go, you know what, I do talk and think about these things all the time. Maybe I'm actually glorying in something different than the Lord. All this to say, I think, and this is me speaking to myself as well, I don't ever want to give off the wrong impression, that we are wasting much of our life, much of our time, much of our energy making visible the things that are not truly glorious. Does that make sense? We are wasting a lot of time and energy making visible things that are not truly glorious. We illuminate, we spend hours illuminating vain glories with vain efforts, vain thinking. And that we miss the reality that people around us are actually dying and going to hell without ever knowing Jesus. And let's be honest. The lost people, lost people are all 
around us all the time, every day. And if we were, if we were to, Nick Ripkin put it this way. Nick Ripkin, I watched an interview that he was on this last week. And he said, if all the people that we were witnessing to came to faith all of a sudden, how many people would actually come to faith in your circles of influence? If you could think of all the people that you've been sharing the gospel with and all of them came to faith, how many of them would come to faith? It's a convicting question, right? Because it makes us see, oh, wow, I am sharing the gospel or no, I'm not sharing the gospel at all. And that's not to guilt us or to shame us, but it's to convict us to see that we often glorify things that are not really worth glorifying. We put effort into things that really are just kind of meaningless at times. And so are we spending more time making the meaningless things or the vain things in life visible? Or are we focusing on the things that matter, that pertain to Christ, that pertain to His gospel, that pertain to godliness, to holiness? Are we focusing on making those things Visible And not as though Jesus needs our help to make them visible. But what I'm saying is, our life is an expression constantly of the glory of Christ. And not just a glory of self. If you watch that interview, I shared it on Facebook. My, my buddy who discipled me, a mentor of mine, interviewed Nick Ripkin. And one of the things that Nick said was, he said, look, as Christians, we're talking about an elderly gentleman who's been in hostile parts of the world, his life has been on the line. Nick Ripkin is a pseudonym so that he cannot be properly identified. This guy is telling believers on a daily basis, stop whining and start witnessing. Just stop whining and start witnessing. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, what are you going to say to that? But it's true. It's true. We often whine about things that are not really eternal and don't have um, eternal impact or significance, right? We are ambassadors of Christ and we must be witnessing to the truth of the gospel of Jesus and stop centering everything around me and mine and just everything that I do. So that's heavy conviction, right? But on a gentle note, Jesus gives room for conviction. He gives room for correction. He gives room for repentance. He gives opportunity to refocus. So if you're feeling the gravity of that, just in this introduction, I just want to let you know that the Lord invites you into some correction. His kingdom is not going to rise or fall upon your obedience or disobedience. Understand that. But he loves you. He cares for you. So let's, let's pay attention to the word today. Let's pay attention to what Jesus is doing in his ministry. Let us be convicted by the word of God. And let us move forward in obedience and courage to fulfill the great commission to go and to make disciples. And really, let's make visible the wondrous glory of our Jesus. And so that is the title The visible greatness of our God. The visible greatness of our God. And we're going to see that in a few different ways. We're going to see the visible greatness of our God in verses 1 through 5 
in his mission. In verses 6 through 10, with great joy. In verses 11 through 12, by faith. So verses 1 through 5, in his mission. 6 through 10, with great joy. 11 through 12, by faith. The visible greatness of our God. And what I'm going to do this time is I'm going to walk through the text while I'm preaching the text, as opposed to just reading the whole chunk of it and then explaining. So follow along with me in verses 1 through 5 as we look at the visible greatness of God's mission. And so verse 1, on the third day. So here we have, if we remember, uh, Jesus had has now acquired four new disciples. His last interaction was with Nathaniel, whom he said, hey, I saw you under the fig tree. Basically, I knew you before I met you. And he wowed Nathaniel to the point where he's saying, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. Right? So Jesus has called his disciples now. Not all 12 of them. He only has a handful of them. And so it says on the third day. And just to make some quick reference here as to what's going on. There's a lot of debate. Are we talking about three days after his conversation with Nathaniel? Are we talking about three days into the beginning of this whole conversation? Um, there's a lot of debate here. Is John hinting at um, some sort of hidden Christian meaning by saying three days later, referencing the resurrection of Christ? Is the term three days later just meaning some time later? Is this a potential connection to the story of recreation? And the reason that's significant is because the Gospel of John is full of really just imagery to the main point, which is life in Jesus' name. Now, we're not going to get into a lot of the speculation and trying to read too much into what John is meaning here, but I want this to just kind of be a quick primer to remind us that John is constantly giving us visible, clear clues that his thesis, that there is life in Jesus' name, is being played out through the pages of his gospel. Okay? And so, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So here we have on the north side of Galilee, the Jesus and his four disciples, his mom, are invited to a wedding. And so here's the situation, right? He's invited to a wedding. Big deal. So what? The wine ran out in verse 3. So they're at this wedding. This wine runs out in the celebration. And understand, the Gospel of John is the only Gospel that is recording this story. You don't see this in any of the other Gospels. You kind of wonder why it's here. And then the significance of it. But while they're at this party, this wedding, and weddings usually take about a week. or about a week-long celebration. And so this wine runs out. D.A. Carson says it this way in regards to the wine running out. A wedding celebration could last as long as a week, and the financial responsibility lay with the groom. To run out of supplies would be a dreadful embarrassment and a shame culture. 
there is some evidence it could also uh, let the room open to a lawsuit from aggrieved relatives of the bride. You could get sued for not having enough wine at your own wedding is essentially what's going on, which is quite funny to think about. But this is the situation. So apparently there's some significance to the wine being at the wedding and also when it runs out, that is a big problem. And so Jesus's mom, Mary, sees this and she, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Mary picks up Drawing attention to this dilemma of the wedding, we don't know why she is so concerned. Obviously, they're invited. There's friends being married or maybe family members. But there is an understanding to the shame that is about to take place in this wedding situation. And so Mary, doing what she's doing, probably uh, because she's had to depend upon Jesus, essentially being the man of the house per se. We're speaking a lot into the text here. But Joseph is not around. We can assume that Joseph has passed away. Jesus is the man of the house. Mary looks up to Jesus going, hey, can you do something about this? That is very possible reasoning why Mary brings this up. So she looks to her son to help in this situation, hinting that Jesus could maybe do something about it. There's no, there's no specifics where Mary is saying, hey, you need to use your powers here. She's just saying, Jesus, do something about this. And verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, just to be very clear, this is not some like degrading and demeaning response of Jesus going, woman. He's just, he's responding with respect to his mother. And here's what he's not asking. Jesus is not asking, well, what do you want me to do? He's not asking that. He's asking rather, what does this have to do with me and to further flesh that out. And what does this have to do with me in the work that I am set out to accomplish? What does this have to do with the mission? And that question forces Mary to evaluate how the situation of this wine running out plays into the bigger picture of the gospel, of what Jesus came to do. So, Mary is sitting here focused on the social dilemma and the potential shame that would come. Jesus is focused on the Father and His will. And so in a gentle rebuke, and this is a rebuke of Jesus to His mother in a very gentle way, He reminds her, My hour has not yet come. This is a clear reference to the hour of the crucifixion, and then later His resurrection. So we know very clearly that Jesus is set on the mission. That is the primary reason why Jesus was sent to earth. He cannot have any diversions, not even from His own mom. This is why Jesus tells us later on, if you don't hate your own mom and your own father, brother, sister, you are not fit to be a disciple and follow Me. And that's meaning you need to be focused on me. And I understand there's a unique relational paradigm here with your parents or with your children or with grandparents or whoever it is, but you must want me and to follow me more than anyone else. And Jesus paves the way in this. And he doesn't do this in being disrespectful to his mother, not at all. But really what you begin to see is a shift 
and really understanding now the relationship. Mom, I'm not your little boy anymore. I am the son of God. I am your savior. You are my disciple and I am on mission. Mary's not the only one who receives a rebuke in the scripture. In fact, she receives a very, very gentle one in comparison to what we see with Peter. If you were to go to Mark chapter 8, in verse 31, it says, And Jesus began to teach them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's in response to Peter saying, I don't want you to die. I mean, Peter was being genuine. He was being a friend. Look, I don't want you to die. But Jesus is saying, you are in the way of something greater. Something that is necessary. And so his mother sees in this gentle rebuke what Jesus is getting at. And she responds well. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Though she was rebuked very gently, she responds really in faith. She doesn't storm out of the room going, I'm frustrated with you. You know, I'm your mother. You need to listen to me. That's not what happens at all. Look, just do what Jesus tells you to do. Jesus, when we read the Gospel of John, is the messianic bridegroom. He is the messianic groom. John the Baptist will tell us that in in the next chapter. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent him, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, referencing to Jesus, the Messiah, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist recognizes even that Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom and that we are the bride and that we are in his presence and we ought to be listening to his voice. And so that is a beautiful picture here that Mary needs to see that her son is the messianic groom and that she is a bride and she needs to hear his voice, follow him. So can you answer the question? Can you answer that question? What does turning the water into wine have to do with the work of Jesus getting to the cross? Right? If you were to ask Jesus, hey, we're out of this. Can you do something about this? And he says, what does this have to do with me? How would you answer? What would you say? Knowing the end of the story, if you will, that is the, res- the crucifixion and resurrection. How does this even point to that? Have you thought about that? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, right? What is he doing from that position? Is there a work that he's accomplishing? What is it exactly? And when we petition him, 
when we go to him in prayer, when we seek him out, are we asking him to do something that is in alignment with the mission of God? Or are we asking him to maybe satisfy some social dilemma of ours, maybe a personal want or an insignificant fix to an insignificant problem? Like, are we paying attention to what it is we're going to the Lord with and what it is we're doing it for? Because Jesus may be asking some of us from the throne, what do the things that you're after, what do those things have to do with me? What do they have to do with the Great Commission? What do they have to do with my kingdom? And look, the hour has come. Jesus has died on the cross. He has resurrected from the grave. And that's why we're all sitting here today. That's why all of us are alive this morning. Because Jesus is alive. And because Jesus didn't get distracted and caught up in all these unnecessary things. But He was clearly focused on the cross. And so we know... From Scripture that we are to make disciples by showing the lost that Jesus has died on the cross for the sins of the world and that they would have eternal life if they would just receive Him in faith. We know this is what we're called to do. And I think many of us may be distracted from the mission of reaching the lost and making disciples, myself included. There is no one person who is exempt from the task of making disciples, of reaching the lost, of sharing the gospel, the good news with those who don't believe. So ask yourself right now, what do your prayers, your readings, your conversations, your research, your relationships, your jobs, your personal convictions, your goals, your dreams, your desires. What do all of those things have to do with Jesus? I would say if they're not leading towards an obedience to the great commission of reaching the lost and making disciples, then you have to ask yourself, why am I pursuing them? Why am I pursuing these things? And let me be very clear, because I'm not going to say, hey, we need to go like, you know, burn our television sets and, you know, become monks or anything, right? And be super spiritual people and not have any fun. I I don't want to be crazy like that. Because look, Jesus is not bailing out on the wedding. He's not like, you guys are wasting your time here. You know, I'm going to go off and do more spiritual things. No, he's, he's there and he's not refusing to have a good time. Obviously, he's going to make more wine to keep the party going. But what I want us to do is to think differently about how and why we do things in life. Right? This is what we do at Redeemer. We, the main question is, how do we make disciples? And so we need to answer that question from the singing of worship to the brewing of coffee to us having classes and offices and a building. How do these things help us make disciples? And if we cannot answer that question then we need to really consider maybe doing away with it, right? We can do that also in our personal lives. What are we doing? How does this help us glorify the Lord, worship the Lord, make disciples, live in obedience to the Lord? Often we ask the questions, how does this help us get ahead in life, prepare for retirement, 
You know, how does this help us prepare to have more kids and blah, blah, blah. Those things are okay. They're not bad. They're good. But that's not the main goal. That's not the main aim. God is our aim. And so maybe in some ways you're convicted. And so maybe consider this a gentle rebuke of the Lord to see his greatness of his mission. And so Mary, Jesus' mother, received the rebuke and she quickly went from mom to disciple in a moment, right? Are you just a buddy, just a friend, just a brother of Jesus? Or are you also a disciple? A disciple is about the mission of the Lord. And understand what I'm saying here. He is your friend. He is your brother. But he's not, he's not your homeboy, right? <laughs> he's your king who sits on the throne calling you to follow him. Are you going to follow him? And look, following Jesus and being about his work, his mission is not drudgery, but it is a true joy. It was the work of the cross that brought us joy. And it's the work of a disciple to point others to the joyous work of the cross and not some partial, temporary joy. And so we see now in verses 6 through 10, the visible greatness of God brings full joy. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So here's the situation. We don't have any more wine. This is going to go south really quick. Jesus doesn't give any answer to his mom, right? He just goes and he does this. But we're going to see, based on this event, how this points to the bigger picture of what this has to do with Jesus. So we have here these six stone jars. And they were used, stone jars were used as opposed to earthen vessels because stone jars didn't contract uncleanliness like earthenware did. So then the stones were therefore good for ceremonial washings in the Jewish tradition. You see that more explicitly in Leviticus chapter 11, starting in verse 33. And so the book of Leviticus, if you've been reading along, it shows us very clearly things that are clean, things that are unclean. And so not only do we have food that is clean or unclean, but we also have vessels uh, for liquids like water that would be deemed clean or unclean. An earthen vessel would be deemed as unclean and the stone vessel would be deemed as clean. And the picture of this in the Old Testament was to be a picture of purity, of holiness, of sanctification as the people of God. The Jews were to be distinct and different from the people of the world, showing that they are washed clean, right? Washed clean and washed in holiness. That's the idea of it. And so these jars, these stone jars, Jesus says in verse 7, He says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Fill them with water. I mean, he could have just snapped his fingers and it'd be full of wine, but instead he tells them to fill them with water. And ultimately, I believe that that water represents the old Jewish law and commands. And we'll see why I think that in just a moment. And so they filled them up to the brim. 
filled these jars up to the brim. Now, in total, what we're looking at is somewhere around 150 gallons of water. 150 gallons of water. Now, most weddings are a week-long celebration. So this would be sufficient for a week-long celebration. Chances are, we are partway through the week and have run out of wine. So we're not looking at a full week's worth of celebration ahead. So we're looking at a more than enough wine to fulfill the time. For those of you who are kind of going, what does 150 gallons really you know, compute to? That's 834 pounds. That would be 750 bottles of wine, right? If you were to drink every single day, right, 107 bottles a day, right, if you just evenly split it up, that's enough for about 600 people to drink wine every single day. And so here it is, these jars filled to the brim, not partially filled, but all the way to the brim, And what this shows us is that Jesus, the sign, the miracle he's about to perform, isn't done partially, it isn't done halfway, but it is done to the fullest. And what he intends to do is to restore the joy for the wedding party. And so this picture is, look, I have supplied you with more than enough for this celebration. More than enough joy for the guest. And so verse 8. He said to them. Filling up these things with water. Now draw some out. And take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast. Tasted the water now become wine. And did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Let me stop there. This reminds me. And there's, John is not hinting at this here. He's not speaking to it. But this reminds me of the story in the book of Exodus. God, in his divine plan to deliver Israel out of slavery, he performs ten signs, ten miracles, or ten plagues. And he does this before Egypt. One of those miracles, one of those signs was turning the Nile River into blood. Turning the water into blood. And as we know, this, as the story goes, Egypt constantly, Pharaoh constantly refused and constantly rejected Moses, rejected the Lord, and would not let his people go. But here's what we see that the miracles or these plagues were designed to do. They were designed to call Egypt to obedience and to let Israel go. And secondly, these signs, these miracles were to prove to Israel that the Lord was with Moses and that he was going to follow through on his promises to deliver his people. Right? Because the people of Israel are going, look, Moses, I don't really know about this. And God says, I'm going to perform some miracles through you just to put put Israel at ease. And so when we see this story here, we see a subtle yet powerful working of Jesus' miracle in a similar divine way. The same Lord, the same God who could turn the Nile River into blood can turn water into good wine. And this same Lord, the same God can show his disciples that he is 
the Lord and that ultimately he would deliver his people when the hour would come. And so the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good, good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Right. It's like a party. You bring out the good stuff first and then you then as the night goes on, you give everybody the cheap stuff. Right. But in this situation. What started out to be the good stuff ended up becoming the cheap stuff in comparison to what Jesus had made, which was great. And so now, now the wedding that seemed to be starting to go downhill and the bridegroom who may have started to kind of carry some shame and some guilt for not buying enough wine, his shame is now removed. The guilt is now removed. And as a result of the removing of that shame and the removing of that guilt, now comes in joy and joy in abundance. They're not going to run out of wine. They are set. So the miracle teaches us that Jesus comes to free us and to unashamedly declare that he is our God. He's coming to free us and declare to us he is our God. Jesus's wine is the wine of a better covenant. Second Corinthians five talks about that. The old is gone. The new has come. The water represents the, uh, the Old Testament law, right? Under Moses came the law and under Christ came grace is what we learned in chapter one. And so Jesus is showing through the sign, through the miracle that the new has come a better covenant. The wine of Jesus purifies us perfectly, purifies us perfectly. Remember from Hebrews one that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These jars used as ceremonial washings for purification tell a bigger story of the purification that we would have over our sinful hearts and souls that Jesus comes to wash us perfectly clean by his blood. And with the wine of Jesus comes unending joy, not a partial joy, but a full joy to the brim. We're reminded in the Old Testament in Isaiah in reference to the messianic bridegroom. He says to the poor Come, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. So this is the picture that this salvation that is coming is free and Jesus is going to foot the entire bill. This bridegroom is going to make sure there's enough wine at the party and that this wine is never going to run out. And all he's calling us to do is to come to him by faith and to eat and to drink in abundance. And we will have an abundant joy. And this wine, this wine of Jesus is the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his grace. Remember that in chapter one, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, meaning when grace comes, then more grace comes. And then after that grace, then more grace, just a constant flowing of grace, never ending like these jars filled to the top, a never ending supply. 
And with this wine of Jesus comes the removal of shame, the removal of guilt, and nothing but an outpouring of mercy and grace upon us. Jesus doesn't even talk to the bridegroom. The bridegroom in this situation has no idea what is going on. And Jesus, without the permission of the bridegroom, goes and removes the shame. Look, Jesus died on the cross without our permission. He saved us without our permission. He took upon Himself our shame and our guilt. And when we take communion and drink of the wine, we are drinking in forgiveness. We are drinking in life and joy because Jesus has taken it from us. So church, then what reason do we not have to rejoice? We should be throwing the biggest parties on the block. We should be the most excited people overflowing with joy. I mean, think about it. If the bridegroom in this situation could be ecstatic, could be excited about what is taking place, how much more should we who are in Christ Jesus? Our joy is not found in anything else other than Christ. Would we agree on that? I'm going to have you respond because y'all are so quiet. Do we agree on that? then what are we doing to take this sort of joy to our communities, to our city, to the world? Right, I trapped you. I made you say, yes, I agree. And then I threw that in there. We find often nonstop reason to complain about everything, about the direction of our country, the ongoing controversies in D.C., the ongoing ethical debates about vaccines, the nonstop bickering about politics, we find ourselves looking no different than everyone else in the world who has reason to complain. But what if we stopped making everyone our enemy And stopped being fearful of things like the government, of a virus, of politics, of liberals, of the media, of losing our constitutional rights. And be more known for the immense joy and freedom that we have in the gospel of Jesus. What if that's what we're known for? Instead of constantly being known what we are against, what if we are known for the things that we are for? The neighborhood that we sit in this morning is the West Central neighborhood. I like that. That sounds a lot cooler, more swag than Grant Beach. I like that. West Central means I'm going to have to get rid of this Wrangler vest. if I'm going to hang out in West Central. The surrounding neighborhood, just some demographics, 5,000 people, over 5,000 people in this neighborhood. The median income is $19,700. A year. Median income. 41% of individuals in this neighborhood are in poverty. 30% of all families in this neighborhood are in poverty. The top five issues, if you go to the city website, are there's a constant, there's chronic nuisance on properties, slumlords, renters. There is safety inspections on rental properties that aren't being had. They need to be had. There's a need for a stronger police presence to address just feeling unsafe in the neighborhood and to deal with the pockets of crime. There's a need to address poverty 
and there's a need for more food access. Those are the five big needs of this community. And what comes along with a life of poverty in that way? Well, in my experience, there's a lot of joylessness. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of bitterness. There's a lot of hopelessness. There's a lot of hurting and a lack of healing. There's angst. There's anxiety. There's depression. Right? You begin to react or respond to things based out of the anxiety that you're feeling as opposed to being able to think more focused. Right? You constantly have the weight of I'm never going to pay the bills. I'm not going to be able to make enough money to pay the bills on your shoulders. Or what am I going to do in order to get food on the table? It's constantly weighing down. And so church, you and I have the answer that this community needs. We have the answer. The hour has come and you and I are recipients of the resurrected Jesus. So now we have been commissioned By Jesus himself to go and tell others the good news. You and I are ambassadors to the greatest manifestation of glory that has ever been seen on this earth. And that is Jesus dying and coming forth from the grave. You and I are living testimonies or as Paul says, letters of the visible greatness of our Jesus. Men and women are living in this community with no concept of that greatness. So then we have to ask, who is going to go and tell them? Who's going to go say something to them? Who among us will call them to drink of the good eternal wine that will not cost them anything, but is freely given to those who will believe? Who's going to open their mouth and say something? And when we go, I pray that we go not because we've been guilted into it, but because we are compelled by the joy, the joy that has been set before us. You understand that is in reference to Jesus approaching the cross with the joy set before him. He endured the cross. And so we have a joy and that joy comes through faith. It's not conjured up, it's not made up, it's not manufactured in any way. But that joy comes through faith. And so as we go, we have to go in faith. And we must call others to receive that faith. And so the last point, verses 11 through 12, we see the visible greatness of God received in faith. Verse 11, this, this sign... The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That's the driving theme of this passage, his manifested glory. Signs, the word signs here, I appreciate D.A. Carson tremendously. He said, signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. In other words, Jesus is telling us something greater about his mission, about his purpose, and you can only understand that through faith. It's one thing to see somebody being healed or to see water turned into wine, 
But it's another thing to see those things in perspective of the cross and resurrection. Because remember, John is taking us to a certain point. John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. We are constantly holding John, the apostle, his feet to the fire here, making sure that he is fulfilling the main thesis of this book. If Jesus is the Son of God, we need to continue to see that. And so he shows us that his glory was manifested. And manifest means to cause to become visible, to make appear, to make visible, to cause to be seen. That's what manifest means. And glory means... A state of being great and wonderful. Greatness or glory. And so this this sign of water to wine, this is why I'm calling it a visible greatness. In other words, a manifested glory, but this visible greatness. Another commentator referred to it as the mighty power of God evidenced. This visible greatness of Jesus turning water into wine is but really child's play in comparison to the visible greatness They would behold when the hour would come, when Jesus would die on the cross and then three days later walk out of the grave. He's just warming things up for him. And the disciples believed him. They believed him. Remember what Jesus told Nathaniel last week. You're going to see greater things than this. You marvel because I said I knew you. You will see greater things. Look, if, if the disciples cannot believe Jesus in these smaller things, they will not believe even if he were to rise from the grave, which he does. It's just like Egypt. If they could not believe in the first ten signs and the first ten miracles, what's going to make them believe that God is doing something as they're Plowing through the Red Sea and it's completely parted before them. Even still, they are rejecting their God. Even though they're walking through or running through dry ground. But it's a matter of faith. One twelve reminds us, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. This belief of the disciples is that same belief we saw in chapter 1, verse 12. It is faith that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for our sins, that He rose from the dead, that He is promising to come back, and that we will be with Him forever. This is the faith of the disciples. They aren't hung up on the wine. They are now hung up on the Savior. And after this, verse 12, they went down to Capernaum with His mother and brothers and disciples, And they stayed there for a few days. You and I have the sign of the resurrection. Do you believe? Do you believe? And if so, then will you move forward in following him? The disciples and his mom didn't stick around at the wedding. They went with Jesus. So if you believe then will you continue to go and follow Him? 
The evidence of the resurrection is astounding, but that ultimately matters not unless it is believed upon in faith. Right? Even Josephus, the great Jewish historian, records Jesus who rose from the grave, but yet he did not believe on him in faith. The wine in this party is going to run out at some point. Just like anybody in the gospel from this point forward who is healed of any sort of diseases or ailments will eventually die. But the wine will eventually run out. But the wine cannot be the aim of our faith. Getting our bills paid, our bodies healing, our circumstances changing are not the goal. That is not the goal. Not saying it's bad to want those things, but that's not the ultimate goal. All of those things will dissolve to nothing and burn up to nothing one day. But faith is the one thing that endures it all. And so as we go into this broken world, yes, we want to be a help and we want to be an aid to all. But the greatest thing we have to offer is not pulling everyone out of poverty, but leading everyone to faith and hope in Jesus. Jesus tells us in the infamous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 to seek first the kingdom of God and then these things will be added unto you. He was talking about people not worrying about what it is they're going to eat or the clothes they're going to wear. He's saying first, seek the kingdom of God and trust me, the Father will supply your needs as you faithfully follow Him. So the greatest need of our community is to see disciples of Jesus like us, who already exemplify faith, and with much humility and courage, we would call others to the same faith. At the end of the day, creating social change to our community does not change hearts. We, we must be a people like Jesus who are after hearts. Because if we only help people come out of poverty, maybe live better, happier lives, make more money, but we never open our mouths about Jesus or ever show them the hope that is in Jesus, then all we have done is help ease them straight into hell. We've just created a more comfortable pathway to an eternal fire. We, church, we need to call the lost to Christ, to faith in Jesus, to come and drink of the living waters, to come and feast upon uh, the bread of life. We must call people to the true riches of the gospel of Jesus and not just money on this side of heaven. So how is the resurrection of Jesus manifesting itself or making itself visible in your life. What are you going to do about it? Let's be a body of people. Who are unashamed of the gospel. Who are compelled by the selfless work of Jesus on the cross. And the power of his, his resurrection. To be the tangible. Visible evidence of the greatness. Of his mission. Of the joy he freely gives. And the faith by which it is received.